Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Um, I'm here in the studio with Dr. Carrie Keene, who has been gracious enough to come on to our COVID-19 online learning experience. This is very, this is, yeah, this is very, we're putting in a very positive, uh, this online learning experience for our students at Wisconsin Lutheran <laughs> College. Uh, it's kind of like when the governor says, safer at home, you know, like this is very, this is, this is really, we're being positive here and not limiting your freedoms. <laughs> don't, don't tell them we're in the studio. Right. So, um, so we're here, and uh, what I kind of want to do, Carrie uh, came on last time, and we talked kind of basic uh, stuff about teleology, not really teleology uh, proper, but some definitions and help us navigate kind of the science, religious sort of debate that's been going on uh, for centuries, I suppose. I wanted to just, uh, for my students' sake, um, this is when we would normally go through the actual teleological argument. You had a couple readings and a nice short video um, on the teleological argument uh, from design. And so I'm just going to let you uh, take that. We don't need to go through that again. It's um, pretty clear cut uh, from those videos and those readings. So today's topic is sort of science and specifically Christianity, but could be religious religion on a whole. Um, does there need to be a battle between them and historically what were some of the flashpoints? Are some of those flashpoints uh, in history overplayed, you know, from um, in, in our modern kind of contemporary culture as we look back, sometimes ahistorically, at those, uh, of those accounts? So maybe let's begin um, uh, at the, maybe the beginning of the, what we call the medieval age. So fall of Rome kind of stuff like that. Um, and so the church fathers, um, they, they definitely would say some nasty things about philosophy mm-hmm. and philosophy and science are not so, uh, easily divided back then and maybe shouldn't be even still today. And so when Tertullian says, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And I think that that phrase gets, gets thrown all over the place and and people use uh, put put their own meaning on that, but what he was saying, I think, was um, that the philosophy of man is always going to be limited and maybe even detrimental to the faith. But that phrase and Tertullian himself th- is not necessarily uh, is not necessarily a, a very good caricature of the whole church at that time. So I don't know if you have anything. Uh, with that in mind, uh, you know, Augustine, Plato, all that kind of stuff in, in your own research, you know, give me a snapshot of that, that, you know, Rome's falling. Now we're going into what we call the medieval period, sort of kind of 400 to 600, 700 AD. Yeah, I wish I had a quote like that. I had heard that Tertullian one, of course, before, which is kind of seen as a drawing a line between science and, and religion. But I'm glad you mentioned Augustine, because he, you know, he was very interested in pagan philosophy and uh, how how can how can we take the good things from pagan philosophy or pagan science uh, and and I guess Christianize it, you know, talk about what how, what's the relationship between these? Do we need to throw out the the baby with the bathwater? Mm-hmm. Uh, so trying to reapproach that kind of thing or, or maintain the the wisdom of the pagans or the wisdom of non Christian cultures. Um, within Christian culture. Um, 
so I, I guess I guess it depends on which which church father you're reading. Mm-hmm. There different people, just as today, people have different views on the relationship between science and religion. You can find a whole range of different ways to approach it. And a lot of it's depending on how comfortable that individual person is with the science of the day or the, or, you know, the, the natural philosophy of the day. Um, and I think this is something that, you know, I have in my, in one of my courses, my astronomy course, I have students read selections from uh, Claudius Ptolemy. So Ptolemy was a very famous astronomer. He himself was not Christian. He wrote, actually, he wrote in Koine Greek uh, around the second century AD. Um, and he wrote a very famous book called The Almagest. That's not what he called it originally. That's what Arabic translators ended up calling it. But it was about, it's the, Almagest means like the greatest work on astronomy. And this was basically used as an astronomy textbook from about 150 AD up until the Middle Ages, at the time of Copernicus, so about 1,500 years. And in the beginning, in the introduction to that, he you know, he talks about the relationship between theology and mathematics and physics and kind of kind of talking about how they're similar and different to one another. So um, even among non-Christian thinkers, it's not just a, a problem that Christians are dealing with. It's this, it's a topic of that non-Christians deal with. How do you how do you talk about the gods or final causes or ends and what's the relationship to the ordering and movement of the heavens, you know, Venus, Mars, and so on, and what's the relationship between those and the changing nature of things here on Earth? So that's not that's not merely a Christian question. It, like you know, it's a it's a question about the relationship more generally between religion or theology and science or natural philosophy. And so certainly there is going to be people. Um, uh, like Tertullian, and maybe I, th- I think we're probably reading maybe too much into him sometimes, but that are going to be hold on here a little bit. Um, and, and maybe the other thing to remember, let me back up a little bit. For us, we're reading everything uh, through a lens of, you know, Christianity that believes the Bible is true and evolution, two different kind of worldviews. So for Tertullian, it's much more a pagan worldview versus a Christian worldview, not like a atheistic worldview and a religious worldview, right? Mm-hmm. So when he is maybe saying, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? He's not, he's not concerned necessarily always with, um, you know, uh, the mathematical stuff of whoever, but he is more, he's just as concerned with Plato and Aristotle crafting a worldview that doesn't align with the picture of God in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. So for Augustine, you know, in, in uh, a couple centuries later from what you were talking about, um, when he talks about Genesis, he very much makes use of what we would call hard sciences of his day, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's going to, he talks about like lightning or whatever. What we, you could see a preacher saying, as we all know from our science textbooks, and this helps me explain some of the pictures in, in Genesis or some of the some of the actual accounts in Genesis, that's something a little bit different than uh, uh, talking about, um, you know, uh, Plato believed in these pagan gods and not, mm-hmm. you know, the God of mm-hmm. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when they're criticizing or at least warning people of these pagan philosophies, it really should be determined, we should call it pagan philosophies rather than what we think about as modern science and learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that's, 
Would you agree with that little nuance there? Yeah. And you know, there, there's, um, I, I brought along this, this book that I'm just starting into now. Uh, and it's, it's called the territories of science and religion by Peter Harrison. I'm on the first chapter, but the, the thesis is really fascinating. And he, he, his basic argument here, and this is related to what you're talking about is that even what we call science today and what we call religion today, were not seen in the same way mm-hmm. throughout most of history. And, and, uh, so for example, um, the term scientia or science and religion were seen more as ways of life or practices or cult like cult or ways you mm-hmm. deport yourself rather than a body of knowledge mm-hmm. so and they were almost like virtues so um science is kind of not do you accept certain doctrinal statements about whether atoms exist or they don't exist, but rather are you approaching things in a scientific way? Are you thinking um, reasonably about things? Are you approaching things with a, a desire to understand? So it's more like the notion of science, at least historically, according to this author, and I think he's probably onto something here, is that when they use the term science, they weren't talking about a body of knowledge like we do today. Like mm-hmm. science has shown that, you know, the earth goes around the sun, but they were talking about it more in terms of of as a pra- uh, an individual practice that is making you into the kind of person you should be. You're, you're doing science, mm-hmm. right? And same with religion. It's, it's not necessarily a body of knowledge, a doctrinal content, but a, a, your practice, your 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 piety or something to that effect mm-hmm. um so science and religion those terms were used in in a different way um and they had separate terms for science and natural philosophy natural philosophy might be a body of knowledge science is more like a practice just like religion compared to theology perhaps mm-hmm. you know religion I, I don't know if you could say something about this but do you make or should we make a distinction between religion and theology in the same way, maybe between science and natural theology. From an academic point of view, yeah, because you know, theology would be the study of God and, and doctrines in certain ways, systematizing stuff, right? right. Religion would, would, the connotation is more practice. Right. Right. Like, uh, although those are mixed, of course. I yeah. Mean, I I think mean, it becomes difficult to separate them, I suppose. But Right. And I, I guess that's kind of the point that, that Harrison is making in the book is that you, you know, you can act in a scientific way or religious way. It has to do with kind of your practice rather than your body of knowledge. So and sometimes we read back those, like the science religion conflict back into history in, yeah. in, a, in a way that it wasn't there. Yeah. So am I right to think that kind of what we think of as an experimental, experimentally driven science is much more of a modern thing after kind of Bacon sort of thing. Like, like a like a, a scientist today is going to be. That's just too broad of a term, obviously. But I think of somebody running experiments, mm-hmm. where somebody um, in the time of wherever, let's just say five hundred A.D. is mu- is not necessarily going to be. If I said scientist back then, which probably you wouldn't say at all, right? But it wouldn't be somebody tinkering in a lab, put, you know, putting things into a beaker kind of thing. Right. I mean, they would be measuring for certain, right. certain things, but a little bit more philosophical, maybe. Yeah, I don't think the scientist was quite, I mean, nowadays scientist is kind of a professional, you know, trade yeah. <laughs> in some ways. And, 
you know, the people who are doing experimental work probably, I'm guessing here a little bit, but maybe an informed guess is that, well, the kind of things people were doing, you might have metallurgists or people like that who are working at forges or whatever, who are trying out different kinds of metals and seeing what melts at different temperatures and so on. And, and you know, they were, that was their practice. That was their trade. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, they were doing experiments, you know, they were trying to figure out how do I mix these different kinds of metals to produce another kind of alloy or whatever mm-hmm. to make a better plow or something. So there there were scientific experiments going on, sure. but they probably weren't carried out by people who, you know, were called scientists yeah. and, and, you know, getting a PhD, obviously, or something. And I think something similar happens in philosophy, too. Like, uh, the term philosopher becomes a... Um, uh, becomes a trade. It becomes you become a professional philosopher, right. kind of later in the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. where you know, uh, uh, you know, more Plato and Aristotle, and and for centuries, just thinking it's a way of life, right? Which is, I think, what you're trying to get at, right? Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I think another thing that we read back to is uh, again this division, this hard division between religion and philosophy or, or religion and, and science, however you want to term that, um, that there are certain flashpoints, uh, particular people who often are seen as martyrs for the scientific cause. So even back in 415, Hypatia, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but this, mm-hmm. uh, this, this gal from Egypt who, who gets tortured and, and stuff like that. And of course, uh, Giordano Bruno and then Galileo. Uh, and when you look at the accounts from an historical point of view, you go, yeah, they probably weren't treated great, but they probably were sometimes jerks. And it usually had more to do with power and politics than it had mm-hmm. to do with um, kind of uh, uh, the, the church being threatened by science and then we have to snuff out this this mm. one this one rogue whatever right yeah. so i mean do you have any insight on, on yeah, any I of mean, those yeah so there the um there's a, a book that i read maybe a year or two ago it's called setting aside all authority and i forget the guy's name but it was an excellent book um and it was kind of re-examining the galileo affair uh and he he points out things like well, it's sometimes seen that the issue with Galileo, you'll probably recall, is that he was arguing that the Earth goes around the Sun and not mm-hmm. the Sun going around the Earth. So he's arguing for the for the heliocentric view rather than the geocentric view. And it's sometimes shown as, well, you know, before Galileo, you know, there were all these religious fundamentalists who weren't using their brains and just mm-hmm. like pointing to the Bible and banging it. And then you had Galileo, he came around and actually opened his eyes and decided to look at things. And then, you know, he was arguing from this hard-nosed scientific perspective against these religious zealots. That's kind of the caricature mm-hmm. of what happened. And, I mean, this isn't at all what happened. I mean, there were there were religious arguments and there were scientific arguments being deployed on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you have to realize also that the, the Catholic Church at the time was the largest supporter of astronomical research that the world had ever seen. You know, so... Like Galileo was like friends with the bishop and his wife, yeah. you know, had a love hate relationship with Urban the whatever seventh or whoever the yeah. pope was at that time. Yeah. And the, you know, the the Catholic Church was running observatories. They were you know very interested. They had very very high quality astronomers who were making excellent arguments. And some of the reasons why they were holding to a geocentric worldview 
were not biblical reasons. They were saying there are rational scientific reasons for doing this. And that many of their arguments were that. And they were saying, well, we should go with what we see as a literal reading of the Bible insofar as it doesn't conflict with demonstrated scientific truth. You know, that's the kind of arguments mm -hmm. they were using. And, you know, unless it's obviously true that this should be taken figuratively from the Bible based on science, mm -hmm. then we're just going to take the literal view. But there are figurative things in the Bible, and we're trying to figure that out, and we think that there's a better scientific reason to, to uphold the literal view that they took the Bible to have, mm -hmm. you know. And so uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating book called Setting Aside All Authority. It was written by a, a guy who's not a professional historian, actually, but, it's a, but it got very good reviews from the historical community. It's a really interesting book if you're interested in the, the Galileo issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Galileo and, and Bruno, who's a little bit earlier, um, you know, often they are said, just be quiet. And then maybe they weren't quiet, you know, and mm -hmm. there's politics going on there. And you got to remember, too, as, especially for Galileo, this is the time of the Inquisition. Like mm -hmm. the churches, you know, <laughs> like to like to say that this uh, this portion of the church with the uh, inquisition and uh you know a lot a lot of money being pumped through there a lot of politics a lot of power a lot of um intrigue in in this world like like this little period right here is uh representative of the whole christian church all <laughs> over the world for all time right i mean yeah. this is a very unique set of circumstances with some huge political intrigue. I mean, the, the Medici's are involved in all this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. and, 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 uh, when you actually look at it, you go, actually the church is probably more wishy washy <laughs> on <laughs> a lot of things. It, here's one more point and then I'll let you, let you chime in. Um, we tend to think like th this idea of that. There was always these, as, as you said, fundamentalists who are, uh, always fighting against any kind of set of progress. And it was always, you believe this or don't believe this really it kind of in the medieval church, a lot was just kind of let go. Um, and you could kind of say a lot of things. There was a lot of different versions of what Christianity was. And we see this on university campuses as well too. like one Bishop and, you know, is ticked off at the faculty of Paris. And so we're going to kick out Aristotle, but then all the students just go down the road to a university where the Bishop says, Oh, we like, in fact, they, they said, we'll teach Aristotle for you. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, to think that it was a monolith is, is, kind of a, uh, a historical way of looking at that medieval church. When you get after the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and the Council of Trent, so we start getting into this uh, uh, area with Galileo, they are trying to say you have to believe this mm -hmm. and nothing else more than any other time in history. Of course, those are, there were impulses of that hmm. in, in, in the past. But uh, it's really, there is a kind of a demarcation there. And this is where Galileo and Bruno are, are kind of coming up, where they're trying to, they're trying to control everything hmm. because you're just coming off the Reformation. And so there may be some of those impulses as well. Uh, and the church, quite frankly, had the ability, because of its money, because it was supporting a lot of these sciences and arts, that they couldn't help but get their fingers in there, right, mm -hmm. trying to control this. And so it's not really a Christian problem that maybe perhaps Galileo or whatever were treated at times a little bit poorly, although not as poorly as, as we, we think uh, uh, today. Um, 
That's he was he was never excommunicated. No, way. yeah, or or probably tortured. He was know? no, he was not. He was yeah. under house arrest, and he was charged with vehement suspicion of heresy. Yeah. He wasn't even charged with heresy. Yeah. It was vehement suspicion of heresy. And <laughs> you know, and 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 Bruno too probably is like we don't like you dealing with magic. We're not so much concerned with this other stuff. And you are a priest, you know? So like when you deny the virgin birth, that's kind of a big one, right? Right. Um, so the point is, you know, if there is, and there certainly was the church trying to control things, that's a human problem, not a Christian, necessarily a Christian problem. Mm-hmm. So think of the Roman Catholic Church as one of the biggest powers in the world is the one funding these things. Mm-hmm. They, of course, there's going to be the impulse to say, just like there is today, I would like you to come to the conclusions that I want you to come to because I'm paying your bill and right. I can get you in trouble. Right. right. Yep. And I don't know that when you read sloppy accounts of Galileo and Bruno and the others that that's really been fully fleshed out. Yeah. And that's why it's fun to actually read you know, Galileo. And I'm glad you bring up the historical context of this also, because, you know, keep in mind, Galileo, I think his last book was written in like 1638 or 1620. I forget the date, but when he started getting into trouble was early 1600, 1615. So keep in mind that um, maybe 70 years earlier, 1543 is when Copernicus, another Catholic, wrote you know, his revolutions of the heavenly spheres where he was proposing that the earth goes around the sun and he didn't get nearly this kind of backlash from the Catholic church. In fact, his entire preface to this was written as a dedication to the Pope. He wrote the thing to the Pope um, and he got a warm reception for saying the same kind of things that Galileo got into trouble for, you know, 70 years later. So, and that, and what happened in the meantime, well, you had the reformation that was going on. And so you basically had a lot of pushback over that time again you know you kind of see this clamping down mm-hmm. during this time that, oh no things are getting out of control mm-hmm. we got to clamp down a little bit so there and plus all and copernicus his style of writing was a bit more deferential galileo's style of writing was much more you know confrontational mm-hmm. he had little satirical comments here and there he wrote his his works his plays where he had characters that were supposed to represent certain people that mm-hmm. he wanted to make fun of right you know that doesn't go over real well right. always and also you know you read the introduction to his um his book the starry Me- galileo's starry messenger where he talks about uh, you know his observations of jupiter through a telescope you know it's a dedication to the medicis the medici family and he basically is i mean if you ever want to read a dripping introduction that's it he's like oh you are so mighty oh medicis and you know i'm gonna name these four moons of jupiter after you because you like jupiter shine like the sun you know it's he's really talking to his funders basically thanking the people who are funding his research Mm -hmm. and so i mean some people can maybe read back and say well of course they have to kiss the butt of the church and the medicis because they're the one paying the bills and they don't want to get in trouble but i i think that there's pretty good evidence that scientists in this period, so, you know, we're talking pre, pre-Reformation, but then after the Reformation, so Kepler, uh, mm-hmm. all the way maybe even in the future to Newton, stuff like that. Um, give us a sense of that. They're, they're not, they're legitimately believers in God and oh, yeah. don't feel like this is, this is a problem. Like no. we're reading a problem back onto them, right? We take, we take maybe a political problem and say, oh, well, this is, this is a problem of uh, 
you know, rationality versus superstition or something like that. Yeah, I mean, Kepler was a Lutheran, uh, as was his teacher, Tycho Brahe. Uh, and um, he, um, you know, he was a, a devout Christian. And one of the most popular introductions he wrote was how should a Christian, um, it was, I think, the beginning to his um, book on Mars, Astronomia Nova, New Astronomy. Um, and where he talks about biblical interpretation and scientific progress. It's a very modern sounding uh, introduction where he's talking about, well, how do we, you know, when the Bible says the sun stood still in the sky, you know, when Joshua was in this field, the, f the field of, uh, I forget the name of it. Okay. And, um, you know, so people were saying, well, you know, if the sun stood still in the Bible, that means it must have been moving before. And if it was moving before, that means the earth is sitting still and the sun's going around it. So a literal biblical interpretation would be that the sun is ordinarily going around the earth. Otherwise, Joshua wouldn't have to have told it to sit still. Mm -hmm. And Kepler says, well, you know, I believe that the sun is sitting still and the earth's going around it. So how can I reconcile this mm -hmm. with oh, my scientific views, with my religious faith? And, and he talks about the issue of biblical interpretation, figurative knowledge, mm -hmm. and so on. And and uh, it's actually a really fascinating and well-written introduction. It's pretty short. Um, but, you know, he, what, one of the other issues that Kepler is dealing with is what, what parts of nature— I know we've talked about this topic before, but in what sense um, can we talk about nature being animate or inanimate? So there's discussion about whether or not the planets, the moon, the stars, and so on, were in, sense, in some sense animate beings or had a mind, albeit not a human mind, you know, but— how, how could they decide where to go? How do they know to go in these particular orbits? And the question is, do they have kind of a mind within themselves, or is there a mind outside of themselves that's setting up the order? You know, is, is the creator the one that's doing this, or do they have an ability to figure out where to go on their own? You know, so there's this question of the dividing line between, you know, where does order come from? Does it come from within nature or outside of nature? And those, those are reasonable questions that Kepler dealt with. They're questions that Newton dealt with. And it wasn't just when they were writing theological texts. They were right there in their scientific writings. They were wrestling with these issues. Newton spends an inordinate amount of time wrestling with the idea of, you know, active powers within nature. And right, right in his Principium, right in his book Optics. And that would have been something that would have been natural to do. I mean, oh, yeah. this well, is, it was a this, natural question. This is a person who is seeking truth, all truth. Yeah. Where perhaps today that would, in certain circumstances, be frowned upon to say, you're mixing things up, right? Yeah. Or, and, and from both sides, maybe, you know, right. from, and so there, there, today there is maybe more of a divide and certain rules <laughs> yeah. um, that have not been always there. Yeah. And, and maybe we're, we have lost something because of that. Well, yeah, we lose the ability to, to ask the big questions, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we can only, sp I, mean, I mean, when I say we can only, I mean, I don't mean you and I can mm -hmm. only, but I mean there's this notion that when you're in a science class, there's sort of a, a wall you hit where mm -hmm. you can't, consider certain topics or raise certain questions or issues that are perfectly rational, reasonable questions that reasonable answers can be given to. It's not just they're speculative. It's, mm -hmm. that, it's that they're natural questions and there are natural ways to approach these questions. And, and, you know, we shouldn't stop our students or our professors or our colleagues from 
entertaining those questions. And when you do ask those questions with a framework from a metaphysical naturalistic framework that we, first of all, without, we're totally going to have an a priori conviction that there is no, uh, no soul, no mind, no body, uh, or no, let me start over. No God, no spirit, no soul, no angels, right. whatever. That some of the conclusions of why we have, for instance, a right or wrong morality <laughs> can, uh, can be quite silly yeah. <laughs> and maybe even dangerous. Right. Yeah. So well, go ahead. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this goes back to what we had talked about earlier, that the purpose, this, this ancient view on scientia, or science and religion was, it was largely directed at how should I comport myself? How should I behave? What, what's the good life? What, you know, that's the study of the liberal arts is, is I want to study things that make me into the kind of person that I should be as the, the best human being fulfilling my nature. And science is a way to do that. And religio, you know, religion is a way to do that. It's, it's amplifying certain things in our nature to make us what we should be. So if I ask, you know, how should I treat my fellow human being, um, I can look at really all sorts of things, mm -hmm. right? And I should look at... Right. You should be informed by looking around at nature, yeah. <laughs> you know, like what is, how, how, how should I behave? Well, by, by understanding nature, you realize what your limitations are, if nothing else. Like, mm -hmm. well, should I fly to the moon? Well, I don't have wings. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I can't, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe there are other ways to do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there... There are, by looking at nature, you can have an informed view about what you should or shouldn't do. I think sometimes there's this view that like those, what you, what is and what ought are completely separate. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that they are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if I look at, uh, how should I treat somebody else? And I have already eliminated the fact that there could be creating the image of God, have a soul. They're just material. And then I try to explain why do we have these things called right and wrong, mm -hmm. beauty, compassion, all these what I call soul words that I can't, you know, mm -hmm. I can't go into, I can't go into a store and buy a jar of just, courage just, or justice, justice right? <laughs> right? You know, I mean, I can't do that. Um, so they're, they're, they're metaphysical, they're, they're soul type things. Mm -hmm. um, but if I try to explain why we have these soul type things, purely from a metaphysical naturalistic worldview. Um, you know, I try to ground it in survival. I try to ground it in something, you know, and it, it none of it seems to be very satisfactory, yeah. right, in the end. Um, and there are people like Sam Harris who try to do that um, and others, of course. So uh, let's get back to the idea of what um, you have a situation, especially in the West, where uh, the church is funding a lot of things. It's, for the most part, Christian. I think it's more diverse than we give it credit for, and that could be a good or a bad thing, I suppose. Um, what about the Christian worldview, and what about the situation in Europe, you know, where universities are, began? How did Christ, this Christendom, how did that become a setting for what we know as modern science? Hmm. I'm thinking about if I believe that the world has an orderer, it makes sense that I would look into the world and, and 
would not be surprised to find order. I mean, do you think that worldview helped or enhanced uh, the progress of scientific knowledge? Um, I think it can. I, I think that... So, I'm going to get some of the words wrong here, but it depends on if you think that God um, is whimsical in a sense or whether he is a God of order that makes things to obey certain natural laws. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, I don't know if that's called an occasionalist view, the one that like God is sort of whimsical and he just, like the reason you do anything is basically God's making you do that mm-hmm. and then God's making you do something different and sort of God inserts himself in every situation to cause things to happen, kind of deterministic, but it's all determined by the will of God. To the occasion. Yeah. So, is that, okay. I think, I, is that called, is there a term for that? It could be. Okay. <laughs> or does, you know, that's one view. And then it would seem kind of futile to find laws of nature if God mm-hmm. is sort of whimsically making things happen. Um, and on the other hand, you could take a, a, a view of where God created nature let it um, kind of ordered it in a certain way, wound it up and let it go. And then it's behaving all by itself from here on out. And that's a, a kind of a deistic view. God was a, the initial maker of it and now he's letting it go and he's got his hands off. Um, and then I guess from that perspective, you could try to find out what are those laws? What are the rules that God established in order to make it work? Um, I mean, or you could see it as, a kind of a combination of those, that yeah. there's certain rules in nature, but God is kind of a, uh, a musician who's playing that instrument, and the instrument has certain limitations or certain rules, you know, certain chords that can be struck or whatever, and yet he does interact with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to be more partial to that kind of perspective. But, um, but I mean, you can see how either of those second two perspectives would lead one to want to study what nature is like, what's the order, what's the, the logos behind it, mm-hmm. I suppose. Whereas the first one could be, a, you know, um, deleterious to seeking scientific explanations or, or laws. Yeah, and I suppose if we're going to define a miracle as something that, you know, breaks a natural law, right? If, if there is no natural law in God, as you said, is whimsically just kind of... Everything would be a miracle. Nothing would be a miracle, mm-hmm. right? I right. mean, by definition. Yeah, um, even to rec- I think that's a point C.S. Lewis makes, is for us to recognize miracles presumes the ex- existence of natural laws because right. you wouldn't say, wow, that person was risen from the dead. You wouldn't realize that's a miracle unless most people don't rise from the dead, right? right? So so even the, the insistence, the scriptural insistence that there are miracles presumes that there are certain regularities mm-hmm. in nature that that we're accustomed to. And whether you want to call those scientific laws or just patterns in nature, it's the same point is being made. So, you know, contrast that with perhaps a a much more pagan view. That's too broad of a term, but I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the Christians are starting to go north through Gaul and through the Germanic states. And maybe they, they do reach people who, have more of a view that that it it's just kind of the whims of God, mm-hmm. right, or the gods, and that Christians are probably more apt to found and support universities, hospitals, as we can actually do something about this instead of mm-hmm. just pray over somebody. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and books too, probably. Yeah. And, and, and literacy in books, so you can transmit knowledge. And yeah, I mean, this, think of the scribes of not only uh, keeping the biblical accounts alive, but many of the Latin, uh, especially Roman poets and philosophers alive. You know, Islam helps us a little bit more with the Greeks and Aristotle, but uh, much of that was 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 kept alive by the uh, by the monks, right? Mm-hmm. The church workers and the church having the money <laughs> in a lot of situations um, and interested in education of people. I think of Charlemagne and Alcuin of York and stuff like that. I don't want to say it goes too far to say modern science does not exist without Christianity because it happened everywhere, right? It happened in other cultures and there's cultural borrowing and commerce mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, uh, the, uh, the desire to invent things right mm-hmm. in competition probably mm-hmm. had as much to do with anything, but to say that Christianity has been an enemy of this progress, an enemy of scientific progress, um, I think would be way far too to the other extreme as mm-hmm. well. So where do you, where do you kind of, as you think about the history of Western civilization, how much credit do you give to the Christ, Christian, <laughs> the Christian worldview for lack Christian of a better, uh, for where we are today and all our technological advances? Yeah, I, I, I think that there are many Christian um, regions that were very helpful um, in developing a, a scientific approach. Um, but there are also some even today that are harmful. Mm-hmm. But I would say that that's the case, not just with Christianity, but I would say that's, I mean, there are ostensibly scientific groups that are hostile to scientific innovation, you know? So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, it's hard to do kind of a, some kind of statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. Is unbalanced, was Christianity helpful or harmful to, mm-hmm. to science? I don't know. I mean, I do know that the scientific approach was... Um, was used throughout the history of Christianity. You know, the scientia, the, the, the approach of using reason and using, um, you know, careful observation and, and that kind of thing were, were common throughout the history of Christianity. Maybe, maybe let me f- frame it in a different way, that Christians should not be against scientific inquiry and stuff no. like that. And, and, <laughs> and not just because, don't be a jerk, but... We believe that material, materia is good. Mm-hmm. It is only corrupted because of sin. That right. that puts us in a completely different category than trying to get out of nature, mm-hmm. um, or to say that nature is evil. Why would I I want to do that? Or or the fact, just the simple fact that you know there is a God who is a creator and a designer, and God's not in the tree. So I'm not going to cut down the tree. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no problem cutting down the tree and counting its rings, mm-hmm. because that's just material and it is there for me to use, but me for me to explore and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, just the fact that uh, humanity has been given this rationality, right? As more than just an animal uh, and has an innate desire to learn and an innate desire to do great and wonderful things. And, 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 and also that we are small. And so we're not going the other side of the spectrum where everything's about us. So I I wonder if that's a problem with the geocentric and heliocentric uh, debates is, you know, Christians should have, and I think 
largely eventually came to this conclusion that there's nothing in the Bible that says we have to be at the center, like right? Geographically. Geographically <laughs> at the center, right? That's a right. metaphor that we are important, but but we realize how small we are compared to God. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that set the stage for the desire and the permission to look into these these scientific things. Um, and even in eschatology uh, that says, yes, there's going to be an end, but you don't know, so keep working, mm-hmm. keep discovering, mm-hmm. that those sorts of things. I don't know how you feel about that, but I think there's something that maybe our the modern Christian world doesn't always like, this is kind of unique that what we got here and should not be against knowledge, but actually should be, we should be the ones saying yes to knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And and we, we like to say on this podcast, right. You know, we, we have the freedom Mm -hmm. to study science and that's a, you know, there's, there are responsibilities that come with that too. You don't want to just like cut down all the trees, right? right? Because we can or something. But but you, there's a there's a caretaker mentality and a sense of inquiry and wonder that comes with being a Christian. That that is very conducive, not merely to exploring nature, but to caring for it and to being attentive to the impact of what you're doing. So I think that's a wonderful perspective to take, and I think. Christians should in no sense be afraid to be engaged in this sort of these scientific um, lifestyle, I suppose, and also just the scientific debates that happen yeah. in our culture because it's a way of engaging not only the beauty of nature but our fellow people. And not be freaked out if right you know when <laughs> people something comes up and and it turns out that we are not the center of the universe. Right. You know, like geographically. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's okay. Right. That's okay. So we can let those go. I, I this I'm going to totally go a different way just for the last two minutes here, and because I I, I need to talk about this for setting up for uh, um, subsequent uh, lectures. Uh, the no non overlapping magisteria. I mm-hmm. mention it later. So. Stephen Jay Gould right. uh, is famous for this, um, and basically saying there's two teaching authorities, magisteria uh, that are don't just think master, but think teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they overlap, or not, they're not supposed to overlap, um, and so there's kind of two spheres. Um, this has been criticized from. Uh, an atheistic point of view, probably more so than a Christian point of view, but I, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with it either. Like we're mm. supposed to stay in our two spheres. Do you have any thoughts uh, uh, on about Noma, the non-overlapping? Yeah, that's Stephen Jay Gould, right? So the, the idea that he he made famous, but I mean, I don't think he adheres it to it entirely because it's not really practical <laughs> to adhere yeah. to that entirely. But the idea is that um, religion is really just about what we should do, our kind of ethics and morality, and your priest or your rabbi or your pastor can kind of talk to you about that stuff, but he's got to stay in his lane, right? Mm-hmm. He, he can talk about what you should do, like whether or not it's, you know, right to eat lobsters or whether or not it's, you know, these kind of moral decisions, but it has nothing to do with um, verifiable reality, like in the sense of what happened in history or what, you know, you can do in the laboratory or anything that comes from observation of nature. Um, And then you've got that. So that's one magisteria, that kind of moral religious Mm -hmm. teachings. And on the other side, you have science and history and all these academic disciplines that are dealing with how nature really is. Um, And so, you know, scientists shouldn't tell you whether or not it's, you know, 
whether or not it's right to you know, put people in jail for life. They're just going to tell you what nature is like. And religious people can tell you, you know, what you should do with your life, but they are not, shouldn't tell you the way that the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth or what happened in history or those kind of historical events or scientifically verifiable sorts of things. Um, so that's the basic idea is that there's, those are two different domains and they should, they should stay in their lane. And it's just not workable. And Right. And even then, he, I mean, so the claim that you should stay in your lane is that, so, <laughs> right. is that, which which domain which, is he acting from right. there? <laughs> which is the, always the problem, right? You can't, you can't just say, well, I'm not going to be a philosopher, right. right? I mean, you have to have first philosophy. So right. what lane is he talking about in here? You know, what, what sphere is he, with what magisterial authority does Stephen Jay Gould use when he to right? set that up yeah so and i think we already talked about how it can be very difficult to well it's not like a a chemist is like well i don't really care about morality at all because i don't believe in a god of course he does and he's going to come up with his basis for this morality and if he does it only in this sphere i think it's going to be fairly inept right and he makes choices as to what to study and yeah. he, i mean and he <laughs> yeah so. and christianity in particular, if it says, well, we can't claim, make any claim on reality, then, well, as St. Paul says, I'm not sure why we're doing this at all. Right. Right? Like, this makes <laughs> If Christ no didn't sense rise from the dead, then your faith yeah. is in vain, and everything we say is futile, and we're to be pitied. Or my translation, you're an idiot if you're a Christian. <laughs> um, and, and so Gould gets, gets slammed quite a bit, especially by the new atheists, um, who do want to make a moral claim from science right and I, I, again yeah, I they'll don't say christians are immoral because immoral. they're lying to you right and right. or you know your god killing the canaanites is immoral right. how can mm -hmm. you believe in all that kind of stuff right so i mean i get the impulse right like like uh uh you know i shouldn't look to genesis for genesis for chemistry you know mm -hmm. and the origin of the species probably a bad textbook for ethics you know? <laughs> i mean right i understand that there's silos right where there's different disciplines but to say that they can't talk to each other um and they shouldn't is maybe uh, a result of the splitting up of the university mm -hmm. eventually we get to the point where you know, the, the chemistry department on a big university has no idea what the philosophy, or even if the philosophy department actually exists, maybe. Right. Right. You <laughs> exactly. know, and this can and in be, many cases it doesn't. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, that was a softball. Um, and, and we, we were at that conference this last summer and I think it was Dennis Alexander, that guy from, uh, uh, from London, a, a scientist talked about positivism, which we talked about last, even though we didn't use the term, we talked about it in last, last session that, um, we can only know what we can, you know, naturally see the only, there's only natural causes yeah. here, the metaphysical naturalism. And, uh, I think he kind of said, well, that, that philosophy has been debunked, but the memo had not gotten to the, to the science department yet mm -hmm. because they don't talk. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, that that is problematic that we think of STEM over here and we think of the soft sciences over here and one is practical and helpful. The other one is for people who don't know what they want to do in life. I don't know. You know, I mean, whatever. Um, but this is problematic if the if the chemist doesn't take philosophy and it's just as equally problematic for the pastor 
uh, in really, you know, going through religious studies and never having to take a science course mm-hmm. when I'll raise my hand on that. I did have to take a couple, yeah. but I don't. You know. Well, I mean, or, or just the view that the only issue between science and religion is, is evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, like there have been, there's been a dialogue between science and religion or natural philosophy and theology for, you know, you know, you, you mentioned Tertullian just asking the question, what do they have to do with each other? Yeah. Obviously that was a question. What right. do they have to do with each other? Right. Right. You know, so this isn't just a modern issue. Yeah, and but it's very helpful that we don't take our our modern uh, lenses and read back into history mm-hmm. these battles that we're having right down. Right, right. So, well, thank you for coming on. I think it, it doesn't solve anything. <laughs> no, it was very helpful. I mean, it's it, there could be courses upon courses of just this topic, mm-hmm. of course. And so, I, I just wanted to give my kids a little bit of a highlight. Uh, in the apologetics class of, of the just a sense of the history. They do have to read some other uh, materials on this, but give them a sense of that. And quite frankly, just the confidence to say, I can be a thinking Christian. I don't have to put my faith over here and uh, reality over here. Right. Right. That that's very problematic and it's not really living the full flourishing life. Exactly. So thanks for coming on and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, students, uh, keep plugging along. And until we see each other again, let the bird fly.